This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. It is a real privilege to be sitting down with none other than Dr. Dustin Benge. Thanks so much, Ben. It's a privilege to have spent the day with you and now to have a chat. It's been great fun to take you through the stories mm. of what God has done in London. And interesting to hear you say, when I ask which ones of these have particularly been heroes, and you're saying all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed, all of them. My goodness, from undergraduate all the way through PhD work, working with others whose heroes are the same. I've just come across these individuals so often in my own studies and my own reading, and uh, they've had tremendous impacts on me. Just seeing now, putting some flesh on the bones, as it were, um, being in the same locations as they ministered and preached and were saved and converted, and uh, God just did amazing things through them. It, it kind of whets the appetite to go back and remind myself of their of their story. It, and it is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? There's so many of them in such a small distance. And as you're saying, the Holy Spirit put his foot down mm. in this place mm. and moved in and through people's lives. Yeah. So, yeah. Extraordinary and awesome fact. Where did you study first, your first degree? Yeah, so um, originally from Kentucky, as I told you today, quite interestingly enough, my hometown is London, Kentucky. <laughs> I'm sure named after this great city. Are you sure it's that way around, huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> as most, uh, there's so many cities in Kentucky that are named after European uh, cities. We have Frankfurt, uh, Paris, London. So really the main capitals of Europe are all in Kentucky. <laughs> Um, but I went to a small Baptist school. Uh, that's where I did my undergraduate. Uh, it was quite intensive. I knew when God called me to preach at a very early age that I, I had no desire to take on a, a separate degree from a ministry degree. Mm. So uh, I knew I wanted to study the Scripture. I knew I wanted to study history and, and all the rest. And so I picked a, a small kind of community-wide Bible college in southeastern Kentucky. My major was Bible. Mm. We had you know over four years of a fully accredited bachelor's degree. I had seven Old Testament classes, five New Testament classes, church history one, two, and three, systematic one, two, and three. So it was really pre-seminary degree, um, mm. but I really enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and you said, was it your first degree you said you had a, Christ, a church history element? Yes, yes. So we had uh, three uh, classes of church history uh, in that first degree. Mm. Um, but our church history professor was not the greatest. Okay. And um, <laughs> he kind of concentrated on his own particular eras and uh, showed us a lot of videos and things of that nature. Uh, but it was in my undergraduate degree that I was introduced to uh, certain names that my own curiosity caused me to follow up mm. and to begin reading. Mm. And so... Um, Jonathan Edwards being just one among very many mm -hmm. uh, who I would study for many years to come. Mm. And then I purchased Ian Murray's biography of Jonathan Edwards mm. and uh, just devoured every page of that and was introduced to him and then through him someone else and, and then just it just went. Right, can you describe how you have been caught into reading? Yes. So, you know, even growing up... Um, in my own home, my parents were not great readers. Now, I grew up in church. I attended Sunday school even before I was born. Mm -hmm. So um, I attended a, a small Baptist uh, church 
um, in southeastern Kentucky. My grandfather really, uh, when he died in 1994 uh, with cancer, it was around the time uh, as a young man that I was really wrestling, if you will, uh, with a call to ministry mm-hmm. and that God was desiring more of me uh, in my Christian life. Uh, of full-time vocational ministry is what I was thinking through and specifically preaching ministry. But then after he died, I began to, with my grandmother, go through some of his things. And in his closet, uh, you would open two doors of where all of his clothes was hanging. And in the top of that closet were stack after stack after stack of books. Mm. And my grandmother, she didn't really have great interest in, in what he was interested in by way of reading, but I began to go through those books, and as I was dealing with a call to ministry, she said, here, you, you can take them all. And so in those books were books like Fox's Book of Martyrs and just really great Christian material that I'd not been exposed to prior to that. Now, I'd heard about the material, of course, growing up in church in an evangelical Christian context, but I did not have access to the books or did I, I had no desire really to, to look at the books. And so I took all of these home with me and uh, sat down in my bedroom floor and just started going through them. And it just created an insatiable desire within me to know more. Mm. And so that's when I was introduced to the Banner of Truth Mm. and other Christian publishing houses and just began to purchase their works and ask for certain books during holidays and birthdays and all the rest and began to amass a library of my interests. And it it just keeps growing. And (laughs) I I now have way too many. (laughs) So you you were reading voraciously before going to college. Yes, uh-huh. yes. So particularly commentaries, I was really? very interested in really? knowing the scriptures. Mm. Um, if I was going to preach, I had to know the Bible, mm. uh, an insatiable desire to, to read the scripture, but to read comments about the scripture mm. as well. And so my grandfather had individual commentaries on books in which he was interested in, uh, particularly Genesis and and Exodus and some of those early Old Testament books. And it just really instilled a love for me in the creation event and the flood and various other things. But I was reading all of these before even going to college, so this would have been a high school period. Mm. Striking. Now, your actual degree, what was it called? It was called Bible, wasn't it? Yes, so it was a bachelor's degree uh-huh. um, in the United States, bachelor's degree. The major was Bible, mm. um, and uh, that just emphasized the the robust nature of the degree being focused on the study of Scripture. Now, what's striking here, you see, is to anyone who knows anything that you have written, you have a facility with words, um, and it's a striking fact that, of course, any minister of the gospel, one should say, of course they have a facility with words because that's what they use all the time. Mm. And you see, uh, what did the Apostle Paul leave us? Well, he left us a big sculpture somewhere. Mm. No, he, he left us a bunch of words mm. and they changed the world. And you read, but you weren't a student of literature per se. Mm. But you were speaking with you earlier today also, read a little bit of poetry. And what comes out now is you see, your extraordinary contribution, probably what you're best known for at the moment, is pithy, strong, succinct, gospel-heavy, encouraging, 
tweets mm. and social media posts. And what fascinates me is that there aren't many people out there doing that <laughs> when it's right there. It's just mm. Twitter's ready. Go mm. for it. Mm. Encourage, build, proclaim. And you think, why doesn't everyone who's a Christian put out wonderful, encouraging stuff? Mm. Instead, you find foolishness and you find debate and you find... I don't know if anyone's ever been persuaded in a debate on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> well, quite. But there are some people who say, well, obviously we're trying to build people up mm. on the thing. If I was to ask you, I doubt you'd have an answer because you can't see yourself from the outside. But can you describe anything of, of the, the curve of your learning or any what you, think you perceive to be the preparation for your ability with words, your mm. facility with words? I really appreciate that. Um, I'm not sure I would say shocked, but it's quite a surprise to hear you say that. No one's quite said that to me before. Gracious. Um, so um, putting putting my mind around it's a little more difficult because, <laughs> as you said, we we don't recognize any right. type of gifts or anything you know within us. To us, it's obvious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I I appreciate that, and I'm thankful to hear that. Um, I think I I enjoyed very early on reading sermons. Mm. And sermonic material is very different reading um, because reading sermonic material, it's, it's written for the ear, not the eye, mm. as it were. And so I'm, I'm imagining these men, Whitfield, for instance, preaching these sermons with these short, pithy, gospel-pregnant sentences and he would just hang on every word. Amen. And um, he was preaching to people hanging from trees and fields in New England and, and all the rest of it. And so he, he was trying to pack in as much truth as possible within these sentences. Mm. The same could be uh, said for Jonathan Edwards um, and then, of course, Charles Spurgeon as well as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Mm. And so these voluminous works that we have, for instance, of Spurgeon, those are his sermons. They're mm. not mm. things that he sat down and wrote with a pen, mm. per se. Mm. These are his audible words. Right. And then there are people that are transcribing this. And so that's going to be very different. It's going to it's going to read differently. It's going to be heard differently uh, than a, a commentary that, that may take a page to say, what a preacher can say in a very quick sentence. Yes. And so it, it was that sermonic material that really helped educate me about preaching, what preaching should include, what it should not include, how quick, as Charles Spurgeon said, anytime I open a text, whatever the text may be, I make a beeline for the cross. You know, that's the idea here. Mm-hmm. And so I think naturally that reading and study of that mm-hmm. sermonic material has ingrained itself uh-huh. within me. Now, you're not seeing behind the scenes of my Twitter. Mm-hmm. You just see the pr- production of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I never set out, never set out to grow an audience on Twitter. <laughs> that was never my goal. Mm-hmm. It's been about five years ago now. I just thought, I'm going to give myself a little bit to this and just see what the Lord does. And I've never followed that many people. I don't engage a whole lot because most engagement in my mind, as you said, should be not on social media. Yeah. But but what happened is 
you know, I'll I'll type something and then I'll delete it. How can I make this shorter? How can I make this this quicker? How can I make this more witty, if you will? Almost something that someone could read as they're stopped at a stoplight in traffic, you know, that will will cause the gospel to flood into their minds and hearts, you know. And so that's probably the influence was that very early sermonic material that I continue to read mm. that, again, is just just pregnant with gospel truth, oh, saturated with gospel that's truth. That's wonderful. Yeah. The, the, the striking thing here is that when you're describing great preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and Charles Spurgeon, Whitfield, as you're saying that, Lloyd-Jones himself was ill at one point, mm. and was it an 11-year-old girl wrote him a letter? Please, we are, when are you going to come back? We hope you're feeling better because we don't understand the other preachers. Mm. <laughs> and you think the caricature is, oh, no, Lloyd-Jones is terribly hard to understand. But it was an 11-year-old girl spontaneously. Mm. Please, we need you back. We can't understand these yeah. guys. And the point here is if you read a Lloyd-Jones sermon, there's an A, B, C. There is cogency. It just makes mm. sense. There's a logic to it, I think. And, and I think the logic needs to come forward with how we do preaching, with how we do apologetics, with how we do evangelism, with mm. how we do missions. Uh, I think that's somewhat missing now is the logic of it. Right. Uh, there's a lot of intellectualism. We have lots of big words. We have people using lots of big words. But I think it was Spurgeon himself that said, if I use these big, huge words, but yet the the people who's baking bread on the corner cannot understand me, you know, and cannot understand the gospel, what have I achieved? Right. Well, I've achieved someone uh, bragging on me for being able to use big words in my intellectualism, but there's no logic in it. It can't be understood by the common person. Yeah, yeah. And so that that's who I want to appeal to right. um, in, in my own ministry. This is it. Uh, Orson Welles said the same thing, great communicator. He says, why do people keep using these four syllable words when all yeah. one syllable words mm. perfectly fine mm. and Tyndale similarly use the simple words just get it across but the point is that isn't their God their God mm. is as you're saying I want them to get the gospel mm-hmm. with the clarity here and that's the beautiful thing of course you're, you're, you're saying you see if you just were putting clear things on Twitter lots of people are putting clear things on Twitter yeah, yeah. but if you're putting something in which is when you take the cap off this thing gospel is going to pour out mm. oh that's distinct that's a, that's a beautiful thing Something I'll say, Ben, just three weeks ago or so, I probably had the greatest endorsement ever on Twitter, and it came from someone who was attacking me. Often our attackers and our enemies are our greatest endorsers. And so people were commenting on a thread of some sort um, about um, me not engaging in current issues, current woke issues, current social justice issues, the the language, the trendy language that's going on right now that everyone wants to sink their teeth into. And his comment was, and it was to somebody else, it wasn't directly to me, his comment was, we can't tell where Dustin stands because all he quotes, all he posts is about Jesus and the Bible. <laughs> and 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 I told a dear friend of mine, I said, I want to put that on the back of a book someday oh, because that God. that's a great endorsement. And I, I thought when I read that, the past five years of social media posting and Twitter, that's worth it. That's uh, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. <laughs> I post about Jesus and the Bible. That's beautiful. <laughs> that's wonderful. And that's 
and that's that's precious be- partly because it's inevitable. Mm. It's beautiful yeah. because it's inevitable. <laughs> that's lovely. What a beautiful thing. So, uh, Dustin, do you remember how it was you came to understand the gospel yourself? Yes. Yeah, so, actually, we were um, looking just today at, at a statue of John Smith who helped settle Jamestown and came to Jamestown. Um, my ninth great-grandfather sailed from England in 1619 to Jamestown, and his name is in the Jamestown registry. Uh, his name was William Binge. And so my family have been in the New World, as it were, um, uh, since the 1600s. And so long history of um, being in the colonies and then the United States. As they began to migrate over into Kentucky from Virginia, North Carolina, and then into eastern Kentucky uh, through uh, what's called the Cumberland Gap, which is an enormous natural gap in the mountains of Appalachia, which caused a great migration to come from the Carolinas and Virginia over into Kentucky and then begin to settle the west. Uh, My family settled in eastern Kentucky. Uh, they, as far back as I know, were part of the Baptist movement in um, the South. So when I was a small boy, I remember my great-grandfather in our church, my grandparents were in the church, and my parents were in the church, my great-great-uncles were in the church. You know, it, it was just this extended family that had this heritage within this Baptist church. And then above the hill, um, above our church on a, on a very large hill, um, is buried my ancestors. Um, and you can go there and walk around and, and this is my great, great grandfather. And he went to that church and, and so there, there was a heritage. Um, and so I grew up in this church. My, my whole family was involved in the church teaching Sunday school. My grandfather, um, led the hymns. My mother played the piano. Um, my grandmother, she taught Sunday school class. My, uh, aunts, they, they helped lead the youth group. Uh, my dad, uh, he was driving the church bus, you know, and it wasn't only a family church. There was many people in this church, but yet my family were very involved. And so there was never a specific time that I don't, that I ever remember not attending church, not being under preaching and singing and Christian fellowship and Christian witness, hearing the gospel every single Lord's Day, but yet, Ben, that was not enough, and I heard it all of my life, but yet at around the age of 11, 12 years old, it, the, the, the Spirit just dropped on me as a ton of bricks, as it were, causing me to realize none of this matters without a personal relationship with Christ, without Christ coming in. And uh, all of these things are works. All of them are, as the Apostle Paul said, just dung for the garbage heap, uh, if you will. And so it was during a a particular series of meetings that we were having, and there was a guest preacher who was preaching and uh, one particular night, I remember going home uh, that night after the service. Very vividly, I remember my conversion. And uh, I got home uh, as as a, a boy. My mom and dad 
my sister and I, I have one sister, uh, to bed that night, and I lay there in bed in the darkness of my room, and tears were just streaming down my face because I was conscious of of the gospel and my need for Christ. And um, I went and found my parents who were still up, and, and I just was weeping in their arms. Uh, they called our pastor. He got in his car, came immediately to our house, and I remember there on my couch, um, as it were, um, as John Wesley said, as Jonathan Edwards said, as many others said uh, in their own conversion experience, that my heart was strangely warmed. And confessing my sin, repenting of sin, and and believing in Christ. And um, I remember that very vividly, a very kind of hallmark, as it were, of a conversion experience. Mm. And uh, I got up from my couch very different mm. uh, than when I sat down. Mm. Do you remember how old you were? Yeah, I was 12 years old. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was 12 years old. And then it was two years later that um, at 14 years old, quite young, uh, that I felt a strong sense of God's calling on my life to uh, go into um, ministry mm. and to begin preaching ministry. And uh, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm so I'm too young. No one will listen to me. No one will take me seriously. And and God just kept leading me back to Jeremiah and Timothy and all those great young people that uh, that He used so mightily in the Scriptures and. Um, I kind of announced that one Sunday morning to uh, the local church that we were in, and uh, just for their prayers, I talked with the pastor about it, and uh, he kind of calmed some of that zeal <laughs> um, uh, as a young person and and uh, even a quite a new Christian, only being a Christian for two years, but yet having a lot of Christian knowledge and and all the rest. Um, I needed some of those things cooled okay. uh, so that I could uh, receive some education and and um, uh, begin some training, mm-hmm. but yet I, I knew the trajectory of my life mm. uh, at that point. Mm-hmm. Now, know? did you perceive that you expected that to be preaching, um, and you ha- you are a preacher, and yet you are now uh, someone who has uh, gone into the academic route. Mm. You've you you went you did your MDiv, you did your PhD, and now you're about to become a professor. Mm. Well, you've been a professor for uh, some time, or a provost of a of, of a seminary, and now you're becoming a professor. This uh, this was not your original trajectory. Can you describe how that has opened up to you, or can you describe, has there been a challenge where you thought, um, perhaps like, you come across a handful of Bible characters, for example, Lloyd-Jones thought, well, I could go into academia, but he felt mm. called to stay in the church, mm. and then characters like maybe Bavink, who called the other, felt the other way around. Mm. Can you describe those, uh, those, those pulls, those tussles? Yeah, I'd, just, just to be honest, and quite transparent, you know, the, the past several years uh, since doing my PhD, I've struggled with it because my my preeminent calling has always been, and I feel will always be, to preach, <laughs> uh, to preach the scriptures, and to, uh, that's my greatest joy in life is standing 
in front of a congregation, opening the scriptures and preaching and seeing the light bulbs go off on people's heads uh, as they understand, perhaps for the very first time, the gospel or mm. a new truth or whatever the case would be. So, so that has been preeminently my calling is mm. to preach. Mm. But yet over the past couple of years, the Lord has dramatically opened doors that were unmistakably his doing, his sovereign opening, if you will, mm. that has led me in, in a bit of a different trajectory, but yet he's always provided that opportunity to preach. And so even while living in Wales for the past year and a half, I've had the tremendous privilege of uh, being an in, interim preaching pastor, if you will, at a church uh, in Western Wales, and um, they welcomed me, and I was able to preach every uh, Lord's Day, Um, and uh, just recently, after restrictions lifted, been able uh, to stay there and to fellowship with them and then preach on Sunday nights as well, and and so just to have that outlet to preach, and uh, even back home in the States, uh, being invited numerous places to preach and to open the Scriptures, and so I see it as a dual role. Um, I don't see it as a replacement. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as, oh, the you're at a crossroads, you could have preached, or you could go into academia. Uh, I've seen my career, if you will, for the lack of a better term, go in the direction of professorship and training men and women for ministry. Mm -hmm. Um, But yet, God still always provided that door uh, for me to to be uh, preaching. Mm. And I'm so very thankful for that mm. because that that would be a an area of my life I would be quite discouraged if I was not able to uh, to to be involved yes. in. Yes, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Yes, well, it's like a fire, isn't it? Shut up in our bones, uh, as Jeremiah says. And um, I can very safely say now at. 40 years old, wow, that's weird to say that. You know, that doesn't taste right coming out of my mouth saying it. (laughs) 40 years old, um, uh, just this past year I turned 40 in 2021. The calling to preach is just as real on my life as it was over 20 years ago. And um, though I'm going to be in a classroom, though I'm in administration at a seminary, uh, though God has sovereignly opened those doors so vividly to me, um, he still provided an opportunity for me to preach on a very regular basis. Superb. Outstanding. Now, you, when you re- studied Edwards yourself at your PhD, what was it about his work that you particularly focused on, perhaps? Mm. So... In my undergraduate degree, I was reading, as I already said, the biography by Ian Murray, published by Banner of Truth on Edwards. That would be the biographical account I would encourage any listener to read. Um, there's another uh, really good biography by George Marsden. It's quite quite a bit more technical. If you want a spiritually robust Um, evangelical perspective, I would look at Murray. But in reading that in my undergraduate degree, my goodness, I was just amazed at Edward's life, that how he served in Northampton for so many years, but yet uh, was eventually fired as the pastor, and uh, then went to uh, be a missionary among the Stockbridge Indians, and and then became president at Princeton. 
But just a remarkable life. Um, and again, it was that sermonic material that, that I was so interested in. But, but looking for a devotional work in my undergraduate degree that was more than just pithy daily sayings. I wanted some meat on the bones, if you will. So I started going through Edward's miscellanies mm. and just reading through his miscellaneous observations, which take up about three to four volumes in his Yale in the Yale edition of his works. And so reading that in undergraduate level and then carrying that over into my seminary degree, I knew that if I ever did doctoral work, and I knew I wanted to do doctoral work if God opened that door for me, that I would look at Edwards something in his miscellanies. So when I began my PhD work in the States, you have a major and a minor. Uh, my major was biblical spirituality uh, under the direction of Dr. Michael Haken, who is a church historian in Canada uh, and also professor at Southern Seminary. And then my minor was in church history. So I needed to marry together church history and biblical spirituality within the works of Jonathan Edwards. I also needed to find something since there had been really a resurrection of Edwards' studies over the past 25, 30 years. Much of that can be contributed to John Piper's work on Edwards. Um, was there an area of Edwards that I could explore and make some sort of contribution to larger Edwards studies that had not been explored before? So I specifically looked at Edwards' theology of angels. Mm. And that was what my whole dissertation was about, was mm. Edwards' theology of angels. And uh, <laughs> it married together church history, because Edwards, uh, he lived in church history, um, and then biblical spirituality, which was this um, kind of mystical side of biblical understanding that is shrouded in a cloud of fog and uncertainty. But yet, in Edward's miscellanies, there are copious, copious writings on angels and heaven, specifically not only um, the fallen angels, which I was not particularly interested in. I was interested in the holy angels, those that did not fall, and what Edward said about those. Well, Ben, when I started looking at this, I began to uncover all the way back from the early church period, all the way through up until Edwards, this robust, reformed, theologically informed, biblically saturated pantheon of people, individuals, that had these books and works about angelology <laughs> all the way up to, you know, Spurgeon, if you will. And then um, just after the Enlightenment took place, which have been, would have been prior to Spurgeon, uh, some of this begins to go out of, out of the ordinary in Reform circles. And so if you go back and look at Luther, for instance, Luther wrote copious amounts on angels, wow. Augustine, mm. Calvin. 
Calvin did not write as much as Luther did, actually, on angels. And so in my dissertation, I go back and I begin to trace from the early church period all the way to Edwards, individuals from the patristic period, the medieval period, the Puritan period, which would have been Isaac Ambrose and and many, uh, John Owen and others who who wrote about angels, um, all the way up to Edwards, and Edwards probably has at least enough to fill an entire book on the subject. And so the Reformed understanding of angelology has been so robust through the centuries that I wanted to help recover some of that and look at why we do not have as a robust of a theology of angels as our Reformed forefathers had. And then I... I discovered Edward's um, writings on the fall of Lucifer, Mm -hmm. and I ended my dissertation with a chapter on his understanding of the fall of Lucifer, Mm -hmm. which I found absolutely gospel-saturated and just phenomenal things I had never read before, Mm -hmm. but yet was coming from a tradition that was very consistent, Mm -hmm. uh, but yet had passed, what, 200 years or more and that i had never heard some of these things with, that i was That's reading true. yeah i had the uh, privilege of seeing uh, hearing uh, the historian tom Molland speaking mm. during mm. the week fascinatingly he came around to the subject of angels mm. and the point that he was making was he was talking in terms of how the impact of christianity on the world is undeniable and has been consistently actual Christianity, mm. not just uh, uh, weird perversions of it and nasty institutional um, manifestations from people who completely miss the heart of the thing. But actual Christianity has been a very constructive influence on the world. Mm. And he, therefore, in, in consequence of that observation, said, so therefore you need to preach your distinctives you need to talk about angels. Mm. You need to talk about these. And then he lampooned and laughed at the idea of getting together with interfaith groups alongside Buddhists and talking about how <laughs> wicked smoking is, mm. you see? And into this idea that when we try to be... The irony here is, and this is where it's fascinating to talk with you about it, accessibility, we think we're going to get accessibility by watering down our message. Mm, mm-hmm. But you are the most accessible mm-hmm. <laughs> person writing on the popular front on social media, and it's pungent with clarity. Mm. It isn't just uh, oh, it makes sense because they're words. No, it's it makes sense because it says something. And uh, and so yes, it's fascinating to hear you talking in terms of angels and may, being able to get your hands onto a ledge here and pull yourself up mm. based on what. Uh, great, as you say, forebears mm. have, have, have pointed out and, yeah. and enjoyed. Yeah. And also not to say, well, we we don't believe that anymore, so let's not talk about that. But say, no, no they believe that. Mm. And why wouldn't we? Yeah. Because the, the Bible says it. So um, so we had uh, Edwards there. And uh, there, was there anyone particularly who we looked at this morning, perhaps, in London's church history who has been, or is there anyone who you would say, this is, this is someone who I've been looking at recently or someone who stands out as a hero of church mm. history? I would say probably uh, people that we looked at this morning, two in particular, would be John Owen, um, who probably his works on the mortification of sin were quite instrumental early on in my um, 
um, kind of framework of reform thinking. Mm. Now, I was not always, um, I did not always ascribe to the doctrines of grace or reform theology. I did not grow up in that atmosphere. Mm. So it was not until later on in my undergraduate degree that I really took hold. Uh, God kind of opened that door in my mind, if you will, and and uh, really began to embrace reform theology. And at that point, Owen really helped me to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, during uh, or in sanctification and what that looks like in, in someone who is um, robustly gospel-centered and reformed, as well as how to kill sin and, and some of the you know doctrines of that nature uh, that I needed to kind of be conversant in that I needed to know for my own Christian life and my own spiritual sanctification. And then uh, George Whitfield uh, mm. was always a great interest to me because of the connection with Edwards mm. and their friendship and that transatlantic relationship that they fostered. Can I pause you there and go back to the, the Owen thing? Yeah, because yeah. The, the fascinating irony there is that you're talking about uh, Owen, and it's so ironic, isn't it? And what I didn't, because I'd like to tease you out on this. Now, Owen is perceived to be the man you go to for dotting I's and crossing T's, mm. the scholastic Calvinist, and yet he seems consistently to be drawing attention. So when he says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you, mm. on the page before or after, he says, but mortification by a self motive by a self righteousness is the root of all false religion mm. such that he recognizes yes be killing sin it will be killing you but you try doing it by your flesh mm. it's just impossible mm. you need the spirit mm. but there's it's a delight to be able to recognize that fact in a man who who if people would be afraid of him mm. if they See, I wish I could cry out to the world, world, did you realize if you actually read Owen, you will be blessed mm. and encouraged and built up in, in actually enjoying Christ's work on the glory of Christ and communion with God mm. and so on. Mm. Now, could you, because you're someone who's, who's read him and, uh, and has studied him in detail, could, you, could I tease you out there on what he talks about, about those variables and about the relationship with the Holy Spirit and so on? What mm. do you mean by those things? Well, there's a couple people in church history that we would see as almost theologians of the Holy Spirit, and I think Owen would be one of those who the Holy Spirit runs throughout his works. And the reason I think he does is because Owen, in my mind, is eminently practical, very accessible even, when you slow down. Oh, wow, that's good. Yeah, that's true. Ian Murray told me, read a page a day. Oh, that's good. Don't don't try to think you can get through Owen just to get through Owen. Uh, he goes a whole page without even putting punctuation marks, you know. And so you, you, you need time to meditate and think about what Owen has said. Yes. Now, he's writing in the times that he's he's living in. He's not writing for future times. He's writing for the people that's in the congregation he's speaking to or the students that he's teaching. And so we just live in different times. And so that's why I think he's more difficult than he really is. 
This this is why he's writing on killing sin and temptation and the glory of Christ. And he's writing things for the practical Christian life. These are not things for scholastic theologians in all these great institutions around the world. I don't see Owen as an ivory tower theologian. Mm. I see him as a pastor wanting to bring people along and say, this is the way, walk here. And that's what he does with his work on sin. Mm. And so he, he's looking, well, his great work on temptation or his great work on the mortification of sin or the great work on the indwelling of sin, all of those He's just like any Puritan. He he took the the towel and he wrung it dry mm-hmm. until there was not a drop of water left. <laughs> and for the Puritans, that just takes a lot of words. Mm-hmm. And so we just have to slow down. We have to read it meditatively. We have to read it and just read the page and sit back and we have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we don't understand Owen as well as we should is because we don't think Mm -hmm. about what he has said. And so that would be my encouragement in understanding Owen. I heard that um, John Piper, when he was teaching early on before he went to Bethlehem, he was teaching at a college called Bethel. Mm. And he used to say to the other he used to say to the other professors, when he saw that they were giving their students lots of books, he would say, what are you doing? Mm. Give them a book mm. and tell them to read it closely, read it closely. That is a striking fact because, because of course, we, we, we like to tick the box, finish that one, finish that yeah. one. Yeah. A page per day. What, mm. what's, that's wise, isn't it? That's wise. But what if you're tempted to read the next page? Oh, no, no. That's tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and before you know it, you've got to... <laughs> Got a new- well, Ben, it's the discipline of uh, meditation, isn't it? And that's something that has fallen out of fashion and practice in our own Christian lives. Mm. We don't even meditate on the scriptures. Uh, we, we've lost the art of biblical meditation. So what does that look like in your practice? Yeah, well, I follow um, Watson on this. Uh, Watson uh, published a small little book looking at his work on meditation, a Christian on the Mount, uh, looking very practically at, at 16 things that we should meditate on. He starts out, you know, God's attributes and various other things. And he's saying your scripture intake of the day should be wed to your biblical meditation. If you're just reading the Bible, but you're not thinking about what you've read, then you've not really read it. Mm-hmm. You've, you're only looking at words. Mm-hmm. And so meditation is like the cow chewing its cud again and again and again and again to soak out all the nutrients possible from that biblical text. Now, if I've just read a text very quickly and I've glossed over it, well, that's great. I may pick up one or two little truths. Watson is saying, no, no, you need to take a a hammer and a chisel and you need to go deep into that text. If we're talking about inerrant scripture, which is essentially the divine breath of God, who is inerrant and holy and righteous and eternal— then you are actually reading a passage that you will never reach the bottom of. So why not mine its truths 
and soak out of it as much as you can. And the only possible way to do that is biblical meditation. And so in reading a text of Scripture every day, pick out one verse, pick out a set of verses, write those down on a card, type those into your phone, and make it a practice every single day to go back to that text and read it, think about it, meditate on it, pray through it, pray about it, ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind and heart to it, and soak out of it all its nutrients and gospel truth, so that essentially you're having God breathe on you through the text, and as he breathes, life is given. And so that's what I would say about Owen. Take that same practice with Owen and some others. Um, Derek Thomas um, encouraged, you know, pick out one, maybe two. Most people aren't smart enough for two, but particularly one theologian in church history and make it your hobby to study them for the rest of your life. Take someone like Edwards. Take his works. Take a page a day for the rest of your life and try to get to the bottom of what they're saying and help and and allow them to help you understand the scriptures because that's what it's about, isn't it? It's not about John Owen. It's not about Jonathan Edwards. It's about that we can understand Christ more deeply, that we could love God more fully. That's outstanding. Outstanding. I love it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And Whitfield. <laughs> yes, Whitfield. Um, uh, again, that transatlantic relationship, um, and that became really real to me, if you will, uh, when we moved to Wales uh, uh, a year yes, and a half yes. ago. So I was on this side of the Atlantic. I have a dear friend of mine, Nate Pickowitz, who um, we co-authored the American Puritans uh, last year. It was released in 2020, and uh, he's a pastor in New Hampshire. So he was in New England. I was in um, England, as it were, and uh, and so we've picked. I've often thought about ourselves as okay. Here's a Whitfield and a Jonathan Edwards, and um, when Whitfield come to preach in Northampton during the height of the Great Awakening, it was one of the only times that Edwards said he wept as George Whitfield mm. preached. Yes. And it was actually during Whitfield's preaching, we don't know this for certain, but many historians think that perhaps Edward's wife Sarah was converted during Whitfield's preaching in Northampton. Mm. And so it was that connection that really interested me. I was also interested because of that connection with Christian friendship and what that looked like. Mm. And then also Whitfield, just because he was a preacher. Um, I love the fact that he would stand before crowds of thousands and preach the gospel, and I was interested in learning how he did that. Well, the fun, it's fun we're talking about these things. It's quite full of irony and fascination, because I do read Whitfield and Edwards every day, because I run the the Twitter pages, and uh, I would say, it's good for me. Mm. It's good for me. And you read what's also fascinating, coming back to the cogency point, the logic point that you're mm. making earlier, is one is reading the sermons. You're reading the sermons of especially especially Whitfield, and you find him saying, And I see you weep as mm. I speak, and I know you are weeping. And just as you are weeping now as you speak. And similarly with Spurgeon, you hear him say, And I know you are as you're weeping as you hear this. Mm. 
Um, my dad tells the story of having heard Lloyd Jones mm. preach. He used to go and listen to my dad studied at London Bible College alongside Os Guinness and Peter Lewis and David Wells and others. But he'd go and listen to the doctor, and Lloyd Jones would preach. And um, he talks of a particular occasion where the doctor found himself preaching in Acts, but he found himself in Romans one. Mm. God gave them over. And my dad says, um, oh, my mum says she was there. She said she was found, she was holding on to her chair. Mm. And she said, as she looked, she saw other people were holding on to their chairs. And at the end, they say, a hymn was sung, the doctor walked out of the pulpit, the congregation sat down. My dad says no one moved for about 15 minutes. Wow. And he has said, he wondered if that's what revival is like, the mm. sense of the awesome presence of God, the sense of God is doing business with people. Now, I have heard that sermon since. It was powerful, mm. and it flowed point to point to point to point. And that, I think, was the... the I could be, it would be foolish to say what it was, that was so extraordinary, but it flowed, it made sense. Mm. <laughs> but it's a striking fact that, uh, that the, the cogency as a man builds the points. And also, frankly, as simply Whitfield takes you, he takes your imagination mm. into, for example, Abraham and Isaac going up the hill. And, mm. and as Abraham turned his face from Isaac, he wept. Mm. And you think, where does it say that? Well, of course he did. Mm. He knew what was coming. And, of course, Whitfield spent the year, he would every day be on his knees with Matthew Henry open in front of him, considering, considering, considering the text. Mm. And that's why he had something to bring. You know, mm. he, he just simply looked at the text. He, he didn't have a technique. You know, he just, yeah. he just and, and the way you describe that, God is speaking through this. It's awesome. It's wonderful. So it's, it's beautiful. I want to talk to you about this all day, but we're nearly an hour in. So I've got to go into your next, um, my next question, which is uh, what's new with you now? And I know there's a lot on your plate presently. Yeah, so um, about a month and a half or so ago, um, actually it's about two months now, I'd received a call from uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, President Al Mohler um, called me and invited me to, to come back um, to Southern Seminary as a professor of biblical spirituality and uh, historical theology, as well as a vice president at the school. And it, it, was, it was somewhat been like lightning out of a clear blue sky. It was completely unexpected. It was nowhere on our radar screen but yet that's often how God does things, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's just completely unexpected, completely out of the blue that we think, but it's been in his plan the whole time. Um, and so we, we really, you know, thought about that and prayed about that and, and um, really considered that. And, and for some time we had been dealing with some family with some health issues and various other things back home. And, and, and just to be honest, We've so enjoyed living here, but living here in the midst of a global pandemic and lockdown and restrictions has been quite challenging. Uh, it's one thing to move, you know, 4,000 miles away from your home. It's another thing to move 4,000 miles away from your home and never able to go back. 
And then it's another thing, you know, and so there's just all these layers that we were dealing with. And so I've so enjoyed my time at Union. Um, but I've often called myself the pandemic provost. Uh, I feel like as if I've, I, I hope, I pray that, that what I've done at Union has helped them through this crucial period of pandemic and restriction. And when we had to take all of our education online, when we had to think up of new ways and new technologies and new creative ways to do things, we were quite well equipped already because of the various hubs that we have around the country, uh, really around the world, um, disseminating our education, theological education, training men and women. Um, but yet I, I hope that I've I've been able to encourage that and be creative there. I will continue to have um, ministry with unions, so I'll be a trustee of the U.S. side of things once we move back. Uh, my wife will go back to teaching uh, primary school uh, back in our home state. We'll be just a few hours from family. It, it just all really worked out so quickly and so perfectly. And I was so thankful. Um, Union has now hired a new provost. Uh, I've been able to speak with him and encourage him and help train him. And and there will be no kind of empty chair uh, for that position. And so God's just been so kind in providing those things. And so um, I'm planning my schedule next year. It's going to be very busy with various things and teaching classes and uh, as well as doing lots of administration, as well as uh, places I'm going to be speaking and, and all the rest of it. So we are we are looking forward to going back home uh, just in a few weeks uh, to, to spend Christmas with our families, and uh, then I'll start immediately once I'm back at Southern Seminary. You also have, uh, you're in the process of writing a book, which I don't know if it's appropriate to say, is it, is it, the, is it part of the series, which, you, which Gentle and Lowly was part of? Would you call that a series? Well, the Gentle and Lowly was a book that just so happened to come before the series began. <laughs> Uh, but yet this series was in the planning. Okay. And so this is a series of books um, from Union, um, but yet they've been published in partnership with Crossway. So Crossway in the States have published them. The first book was Rejoice in Trembling by our President Mike Reeves. Uh, the second book is coming out in February, which is mine. It's called The Loveliest Place, The Beauty and Glory of the Church. Uh, I open that book um with uh, comments by John Gill, who we saw uh, his mm. burial place today in Bunhill yeah. Fields, uh, as well as Edwards and many others come through in this book looking at the beauty of the church, not what the church does, but who she is, mm. who she is in Christ, mm. and how the Spirit beautifies her, how Christ is beautifying her. And and so I really pray that it's a, a helpful message uh, in the moment when we're somehow thinking about what is the purpose of the church should we go back to church should you know we've been on we've been having zoom should we continue doing that should we you know all these questions have come up the past year what is the church supposed to be and so i hope that that i'll help do that um actually the second book came out in september uh which was dane ortland's book called deeper okay. uh, that was the second book in the series mine will be the third and then next september september 2022 um the fourth book will come out in the series and it really hits the four main vision principles for union okay. as a whole mm -hmm. yeah 
I'm reading that uh, gentle and lowly now. It's mm. just wonderful, but fascinating also. So many of the uh, people who are quoted have history in London. And today yes, we were yes. in Bunhill and we yeah. found Thomas Goodwin's. Yeah. First time I've seen it, got Thomas Goodwin's. Uh, yeah. uh, I've probably seen it, but didn't know it was his, his grave. And, uh, and he's seeing him quoting these people. But again, interesting that you're talking in terms of the church because so many of the... London has seen great breakthroughs in revivals and so on, but also exemplary local church ministry mm. and people who have not been remembered and yet they served and probably didn't think anyone was looking. Mm. And we read their books hundreds of years yeah. later. Yeah. So, you know, we, we could have gone there today. John Owen was minister of a church in Leadenhall Street uh, where there's a tiny little congregation, like mm. 30 people or something. John Owen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> extraordinary. And then it grew, and it, oh, he added to another congregation. So. so, my last question, and this always sounds august, and it always sounds uh, so. You, you have to just, you just have to brace yourself. <laughs> but what would, what advice would you give to uh, people listening to this? Mm. It might be something you heard years mm. ago, or it might be I'm seeing this, I wish I wasn't, or something you're learning. Yeah, we. I told my wife the other day, Ben, um, I never thought I would say I, I, I miss 2019. Things have so changed uh, since just in the past year and a half. Uh, I think God has done more in the past year and a half than we could have done in 10 lifetimes in regard to um, opening doors, closing other doors, closing certain people, um, he, the church has really shook up, if you will, uh, over the past year and a half, particularly in the States, uh, with the current, um, justice issues and uh, the woke narrative that has started and, and all the rest of it. But I, but I'm seeing a, a very dangerous trend in the church and that is disunity, mm-hmm. um, Throughout the church history, the church has always been somewhat disunified. I mean, there's always disagreements, there's always factions, there's always uh, divisions. Ultimately, that's why none of us are the head of the church. That's why Christ is the head of the church. And he said he would grow his church, and I just trust him enough to do that. And so I need to get out of the way and let him do that and just be simply used. Um but I think the the trend that I'm seeing is this faction creating disunity that um, that is becoming very dangerous by way of attacking other believers um, for disagreeing with us, um, disagreeing with our the way we stand on certain issues. Uh, how we stand, what our stand looks like. In other words, if your stand doesn't look like my stand, then you're probably not a Christian. It's become that level of disunity and disgruntlement that I think we've lost focus, the church has, over the past year and a half. Our focus has went in so many different directions. Mm. The focus is no longer on the gospel, um, it's on t- temporary, transitory things that have little to do with the gospel. 
Um, it's me getting my way. It's me voicing my opinion. Now, of course, everyone has a platform on social media to have an opinion. Yeah, yeah. And so that's created even more danger. Yes, yes. Um, the church in the States is so fractured right now. Mm. And so it just really grieves my heart. Um, and so I think we need to get back to what God has said about his church, what Christ has said about his church, what the Holy Spirit is doing within his church, which is fashioning and conforming the bride of Christ into the image of Christ. And how so many millions of people are around us dying and going to hell every day but yet we're fighting over oh, what biblical justice is supposed to look like. And it just so grieves my heart. So that's one piece of kind of the element of a very dangerous trend that I'm seeing mm. that just destroys our witness. It destroys the message of the gospel. Um, my second piece of advice, I've already said, take a page a day. Uh, if you love church history, if you uh, are thinking about various things and uh, you want to investigate more of, of church history and some of these individuals that we've talked about, take that advice. Pick somebody and take a page a day, <laughs> and you'll be amazed at what the Lord teaches you. Amen. And there are some great resources out there. Mm. Yeah. And also, I would say, if you're not on Twitter, don't go on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if you are on Twitter, <laughs> follow Dustin Ben. <laughs> And follow. There's a handful of guys out there who are still trying to encourage and mm. build people up. Mike is superb, mm. and uh, and that Ray, uh, the Ortland is superb. Dane Ortland and Keller and Piper. My dad is very good. On and there's some of the historic guys. They'll encourage you, build you up. Mm. This Dustin, it's been so excellent to have this time with you. Thank you so much, and for oh. your clarity of explaining that. Wonderful. Mm. Well, thank you very much indeed, Ben. It's been great to spend the day with you and uh, see some of these wonderful historical sites that we've so wanted to see and stand where God has actually stood in the lives of these men and women who changed history, Uh, not because they intended to do so, but God decided to use them enough as uh, he does clay in the hands of his Uh, in his own hands and molding and shaping us into the image of Christ. But uh, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.